Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Welcome to episode three of four of the Practice Changing Updates, the Evolving Hemophilia Treatment Landscape podcast series. I'm Dr. Guy Young, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Southern California and Director of the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I'm joined by my colleague, Angela Wyan. In this episode, we will discuss novel non-replacement therapy and gene therapy, which are poised to revolutionize the treatment and management of hemophilia A. The potential and mechanism of action of these innovative therapies will be discussed. We will also deliberate upon recently reported or published evidence on these novel therapeutics. We're going to talk about a novel non-replacement therapies and gene therapy. And I think that one of the things to think about is also the disease burden. Um, so I think about things as the disease burden and the treatment burden in hemophilia. And the disease burden is really about bleeding and the uh, after effects of bleeding. So as you see here, we have pictures, uh, patients of mine, things start out with like an acute hemarthrosis, which could develop into a target joint. Then you see the boy with the blue sock to the right where it says synovitis. Eventually you can develop synovitis if that target joint is not dealt with. And then ultimately you'll end up with end stage arthropathy as you see in the bottom photo. I think you can see that the knee there on the, uh, the patient's right knee has got uh, really no landmarks and the atrophy below the knee. Um, and what we found is that, you know, bleeding rates in patients on prophylaxis um, still are between two and six per year in the clinical trials. So if you look at all the clinical trials of the factor eight um, molecules that have come to the market recently, other than Altuvio that you just heard about, um, that you typically see um, two to six bleeds per year as the ABR. And that's probably because their half-lives are not long enough and uh, you end up with a trough level, you know, maybe around 1% or maybe as high as 4%. Um, the other important issue is that subclinical bleeding certainly does occur. And uh, to the extent that there's overt bleeding, you can count on the fact that if you see overt bleeding, as in measured by the ABR, you also uh, must have some situations of subclinical bleeding that'll make things worse. And the other aspect I often think about is the treatment burden. What is the burden of the treatment itself to prevent the bleeding? And of course, uh, Angela went through some of the history talking about the fact that intravenous clotting factors have been really the mainstay, but their issue is that they are intravenous, often multiple times a week, even with the extended half-life factor eights, it's two to two times a week, maybe every three days even, or maybe every four days, but typically not less than that. And this, of course, negatively impacts quality of life. And so here's a picture that a father sent to me of his son, where he showed me three band-aids, three bandages, and he told me that that was for one infusion, which really set me back a little bit and I had to call him and tell him not to do focus on six times just to try to get the one dose of factor in. And his, re his response was, well, Dr. Young, if I don't get the dose of factor in, then he's, he's likely to bleed. So yeah, he can be in a really tough situation as you see uh, in that, in that uh, boy there. So let's take a look at the mechanism of action of the novel therapies. And we've heard of some of these already and I won't uh, reiterate them, but just as a sort of a global view, in green will be replacement therapies. You've heard about that. And substitution therapies, you've heard about those. I'll be talking about rebalancing agents, but just so we can see the whole picture, 
there's Epinus octocog alpha, where, where it work in the coagulation cascade that I've shown you here. This is where emicizumab and the, the follow-on um, mimetics or substitution therapies that are being worked on, mimate and NXT007 that are in clinical trials. And then what I'll be talking about is rebalancing agents. Uh, so we're going to talk about fetusaran, which is an inhibitor of antithrombin. Notice the dash line means inhibitor. So we're inhibiting an inhibitor. Concizumab, marstasumab, and the later stage MG1113. These are inhibitors of tissue factor pathway inhibitor, which in itself is an inhibitor, of course, of the tissue factor pathway. Um, Serpin PC is an inhibitor of activated protein C, and not yet in clinical trials, uh, but in clinical development, uh, at least I don't think these are in clinical trials yet, are inhibitors of protein S, which by their mechanism of action also inhibit uh, tissue factor pathway inhibitor. And then I will touch on just briefly gene therapy uh, for uh, hemophilia A here, factor eight. Um, there's gene therapy for factor nine, but we won't be really talking about that today. So um, here's the sort of issue of the rebalancing. So if we look at figure A, that's normal hemostatic balance. You see that the, the seesaw, if you will, are um, of the same um, uh, numbers. And so the seesaw is balanced. If you go to B, which is below that, we've taken off some of the procoagulants. So imagine we took off you know, three balls, which are factor eight, just as an example. Then you end up in a bleeding situation. It's tilted towards more bleeding. Um, if we, in, in figure C or, or, or panel C at the top right, if we have hemophilia and then we add a procoagulant protein, be it uh, a factor eight or emicizumab, um, this is showing like uh, factor 7A as well as if it was inhibitors, we can, we can start to rebalance things. But the other way to rebalance things is to um, have a situation of hemophilia and take away one of the coagulation inhibitors or remove them or block them, such as fetusaran or TFPI inhibitors. And that's what we'll be talking about. And that's what I mean by rebalancing. Advantages of the rebalancing agents are that because they are not working specifically on a factor, they're not a factor replacement, they're not a factor substitute, uh, therefore they can work in patients with hemophilia A and B, and it doesn't matter whether those patients have inhibitors, because of course the inhibitors are specifically to the factor proteins. So these could be sort of a, a pan-hemophilia drug, if you will, uh, regardless of uh, the type of hemophilia or the presence of inhibitors. There's multiple mechanisms of action of these, which may be at more advantageous. So one mechanism might be more advantageous in some patients over others. They can be used in different types of patients as a result of that. They've been shown to be efficacious. I'll show you some data on that. They've been shown mostly to be safe. Um, there have been thrombotic issues, so I have that on the con side. There are some safety concerns about thrombosis, but by and large, they've been uh, largely uh, safe for the patients. They're all administered subcutaneously and not, not part of this talk, but they potentially could be used to even treat other bleeding disorders apart from hemophilia. The downside is that it's a novel mechanism of action, and you will have to learn about things like tissue factor pathway inhibitor that you might have taken for granted I think antithrombin and protein C, most hematologists are familiar with, but still understanding the detailed me mechanisms of protein C. So for example, it's really activated protein C that serpent PC is inhibiting, not actual protein C. So little nuances like that can become important to understanding the drug's mechanism of action. Therapeutic drug monitoring with dose adjustments will be required, at least for some of these rebalancing agents as we've um, seen in some of the clinical trials. There still are safety concerns, and there have been thrombotic events with most of these, although, again, there's been mitigation strategies to try to eliminate those. 
And while some of these have an antidote, uh, others do not have an antidote. So like if you do get in trouble with thrombosis um, with a anti-antithrombin drug, well, we do have antithrombin to rescue the patient. But if you have the same situation with an anti-tissue factor pathway inhibitor drug, you know, there is no tissue factor pathway inhibitor molecule that you can infuse to rescue the patient. So these are just a table looking at some of the properties, the mechanism of action. I already went through that in the uh, previous slide with the coagulation cascades. So I won't reiterate that. You see the names of some of the drugs, which we've mentioned already as well. Dosing, you can see for pituceran, it's going to actually be initially subcutaneously every other month, and it may increase to every month, but not more than once a month. Consistimab, on the other hand, is a subcutaneous daily injection. Now, there is a fancy little pen device that makes things a lot easier to try to mitigate against the fact that this is daily. Um, Marstasimab is weekly, and the anti-APC, they're still working out some of the dosing, but likely it will be similar to uh, what you've seen for emesizumab with weekly every other week or every four-week dosing. And then if we just, uh, again, take a look at overall uh, novel factor, uh, novel therapies, excuse me, for hemophilia, just uh, I made this table looking at like infusions per year just to kind of give a sense of how that works. So factor replacement is as, you know, either weekly as FNS octocog is or some of the factor nines or every other day. So between 52 and 183, IV injections per year. And the cizumab, uh, as you've seen, is either once a week or every four weeks, so 13 to 52. The issue there is there is a long washout and there's no antidote. So once a patient has these drugs on board, you know, if you don't like how it's uh, affecting the patient, there's not much you can do about it other than wait. Pituceran, six to 12 subcutaneous injections a year. In fact, the initial dose is every other month. Again, a really long washout. Now, there is an antidote in terms of antithrombin infusion, but that is a short half-life. So if you really need to reverse a patient, you're going to have to be giving IV antithrombin uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, fortunately, in the trials, that was hardly ever needed. So it's not like it's been a common thing, a uh, common theme in the trials. Concizumab is daily, so that's 365 subcutaneous injections. Uh, unless it's next year, which is leap year, it would be 366. Um, but again, it does have this advantage of a rapid washout, so that's a bit different. And then Morstasimab and Serpin PC, we've already sort of mentioned how they're dosing. So let's take a look at some data. This is data from the ATLAS AB trial. This is a trial in patients with hemophilia A or B, as the title indicates, but who do not have inhibitors, so no inhibitors. And in this trial, there was a comparison group that was on demand. Now, you might say, well, in the U.S., we don't do that, and that's true, um, that we wouldn't have this trial in the U.S., but this trial is conducted around the world. Keep in mind that there's a lot of patients around the world that don't have access to prophylaxis. In the green bars is the, bleed the annualized bleeding rate as a median uh, of all bleeding events, treated bleeds, treated spontaneous bleeds, and treated joint bleeds as you go from left to right. The Tuceran is that uh, sort of teal color, that bluish teal color that you see there. And at that time, you know, in these trials, the dosing was 80 milligrams subcutaneously once per month. I think it's pretty obvious as you look at this that Fetusran essentially stopped almost all the bleeding. Only all bleeding events even had a median that could be recorded. And that, that was not, those are bleeds that were not treated. Because you can see treated bleeding events, the median was zero, so more than half the patients had no bleeds. Same with treated spontaneous joint bleeds and treated joint bleeds. Focusing in on the ATLAS INH trials, this was designed the same way as the ATLAS AB trial. This was inhibitor patients. And here, uh, on-demand therapy is actually more common with inhibitor patients, uh, although we do have prophylaxis for heme with emesizumab, as you heard earlier, 
We don't have for heme B. And a lot of this uh, work was done before emicizumab was broadly available. What you see on the right side is the percent of patients with zero bleeds, 5.3%, so one out of 17 patients, or 19 patients uh, who were on bypassing agent on demand had zero bleeds. But with fitusaran, 66%, almost two-thirds of those had zero bleeding events. And in the table, if you look at the mean ABR, it went from 18.1 for bypassing agents on demand down to 1.7 and the median from 16.8 to zero. So clearly, fitusaran was really effective at preventing bleeding events. We jump to concizumab. This is the EXPLORE 7 trial. So this includes patients with hemophilia A and B with inhibitors. We'll talk about the other trial without inhibitors. It's patients with inhibitors. I don't have a lot of animation on here, but if you just look at the top line again, you have one group of patients on no prophylaxis. Again, this is inhibitor patients. And then group two, concizumab prophylaxis. And the primary endpoint is that first row of white near the top where it says treated spontaneous and traumatic bleeding episodes. So basically treated bleeds. And then the no prophylaxis group, um, you can see that it was 11.8. And in the concizumab group, it was 1.7. So the ratio was 0.14, which was obviously strongly statistically significant. And then you see similar outcomes of reduced bleeding rates, uh, including for uh, spontaneous bleeds, joint bleeds going from about 9 to about 1.5. So again, concizumab, clearly a very effective in heme and B patients with inhibitors. And here's the heme and B patients without inhibitors. This is the EXPLORE-8 trial. And so here, again, just looking at the table, we've simplified this a little bit more, looking at patients on no prophylaxis. And again, this was an international study, and I understand that most patients in the US without inhibitors would be on prophylaxis. But in this case, you've got patients on no prophylaxis compared to concizumab. And again, you see a significant reduction in the mean ABR from 19.3 to 2.7. Um, and so uh, ultimately, uh, there was superiority of concizumab over no prophylaxis that was met in that clinical trial. And then the full publication will be out soon. I neglected to mention that Explore 7 was just recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. If I go back one slide, uh, you can see down there 2023. And the first author is Tadashi Matsushita. So you can have a look at that and get a lot more detail. The Explore 8 manuscript is being worked on. So ultimately, uh, you'll see that currently. It's only in the abstract form from ISTH last year. So marstasimab, this is another anti-TFPI inhibitor molecule. Now, I'll caution you here that this is data from a phase 2 trial. We have not seen yet really the full phase 3 data, although there was a recent press release I'll talk about in a moment. So here you've got you know, lots of cohort doses. Of course, phase two is kind of like a dose finding trial. So that's why there's six, you know, uh, six cohorts, actually five cohorts with lots of different dosings, including patients uh, without inhibitors, patients with inhibitors. So it's, it's, it's quite a busy slide, but I'll, I'll just um, basically have you take a look at the pretreatment ABR, which is in that top uh, row just below uh, the groupings, where you can see ABRs that are, you know, in the teens to low 20s. And if you go down to the next uh, uh, green colored box, which is the on-study uh, ABR, the mean, you can see that it's a lot lower. Now, again, phase two trials are really not meant uh, for efficacy, but certainly you can see here uh, that that the uh, marstasinab clearly had uh, an effect, and that's what allowed it to move to phase three. 
And the phase three basis trial is, is ongoing. Um, there was, um, uh, it's looking at uh, weekly dosing with just one, a loading dose of 300 milligrams, and that's taken from that phase two trial where there are multiple different doses, followed by a 150 milligram once weekly dose. It's flat dosing, it's not weight-based. Um, so over 100 patients uh, were involved in this trial, as you can see. And what was found, and this is, again, you see the reference on the bottom, it's just a press release. So I, I always take press releases a little bit with a grain of salt. It's not an abstract, which is at least slightly peer-reviewed, nor a manuscript, which is fully peer-reviewed. But at least in this press release, what was uh, demonstrated was compared to on-demand a factor replacement in these non-inhibitor patients, uh, that there was a 92% reduction in bleeds. So similar to what you saw in Pitusaran Atlas AB and in the Explore 8 trial, uh, where you saw this significant reduction compared to on-demand. As far as comparison to prophylaxis, there was a bit of a less reduction, a 35% reduction in annualized bleeding rates. Of course, patients on prophylaxis already have fairly low bleeding rates, but marstesumab was superior uh, to uh, factor prophylaxis. So I'm anxious to really see more of this data uh, hopefully presented. I don't know if they're going to be presenting it at ASH, to be honest with you, but uh, in some upcoming meeting. And the safety profile was was pretty good. In fact, uh, Marstacinab has so far not had, to my knowledge, any thrombotic events. So anyway, the question is, which one of the following emerging agents for hemophilia is a substitution therapy? Concizumab, Marstacinab, Pitusaran, Mimate, or MG1113. All right, so so yeah, I'll, I'll start with a little bit of the teaching here, which is that, and this is this is semantics and language. Uh, so we have mixed results. And I think, you know, the word here is substitution therapy. So substituting for the missing factor. In this case, that's what we mean by substitution therapy. And so that really the answer there would be would be D, uh, which is uh, which is my main. The others are not substituting for missing product. In fact, the other four would be in the category that we call rebalancing agents. Okay, so moving on to uh, gene therapy, which is the last part of our talk, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for questions. I am cognizant that we're getting short on time. I'm just going to give you a little flavor here, that's all. So gene therapy and hemophilia A, essentially you can see in that complicated figure, but I'll just boil it down to we're putting the DNA, a functional copy of DNA for either factor eight uh, or factor nine, in this case, heme is factor eight. You put it into a vector, deliver the vector intravenously. The vector is targeted to the liver, hepatocyte. It uncoats in the hepatocyte, drops off the DNA in the nucleus, which then forms an episome. So an extra chromosomal piece of DNA, which is called an episome, which now has the DNA for factor eight. And then that DNA can get uh, uh, transcribed into uh, through the ribosome to mRNA and then translated to a protein and the patients hopefully can produce factor eight. Um, and you can see the three products that are furthest along, in fact, the Loctocogene Roxaparvivec, which is an AV5 mediated gene therapy is now approved. Um, it was licensed in uh, late June, I believe, so a few months ago, and it is available for prescription. The next one that will likely be licensed, I don't know exactly when, but I believe it'll be sometime in 2024, is Gene Fiddleparvivec, and that's uh, still, I guess, in the phase three stage, and that is a, a AV6 combo with AV2 vector. And then uh, the SPK8011 molecule, which uses a, um, a proprietary vector from Spark called AV Spark 200. That's a little bit earlier phase uh, than Geroctocogene Fiddle Parvivec. 
Um, and so here's the data for uh, the Generate 1 trial, which is the phase three trial. So the left panel is the change in factor rate activity. You can see that through about week 24, maybe week 26, about six months, factor rate levels are rising uh, to close to the normal range. So the diamond is a box and whisker plot. The diamond is the mean. The straight line inside the box is the median. And then the uh, box is the interquartile range. And then the ranges are the error bars. So you can see there is quite a bit of variability between, uh, in between patients, even including an interquartile uh, range with you know patients around 20% to as high as uh, about 70%. And this is based on a chromogenic factor eight assay, by the way, so not the one stage clotting assay. And then over some time, you start to see a drop off in the factor level through year one, which uh, we don't show here, but does continue through year two and year three, albeit it's a slow but steady drop off. As far as bleeding episodes, you can see that bleeding almost stops, the medians are zero. If you look at the right panel, the left side of the right panel, and then after the um, baseline, uh, compared to from baseline to after the infusion. So you've got a median of 2.8 to median of zero and a mean of 4.8 to mean of 0.8. And, and factor infusions, the right side of the right panel, you can see pretty much goes to nothing. So these patients are not infusing factor and they're not bleeding. And that's because they have a factor eight level that is providing them therapeutic benefit. There's been a lot of use of immunosuppression. You can see that almost 80% of the patients needed some immunosuppression due to increased ALT and AST, which may mean a sign of an immune response against the cells that have been transduced. And so that's where the steroids come in. I think there's still a lot to learn about how we're using the steroids in these patients. So I think stay tuned uh, for that. And I unfortunately don't have time to really get into those details. What we can see here in terms of the uh, uh, factor eight levels, and again, these are chromogenic assays is that by year three, first of all, 92% of the patients are still off of prophylaxis. Uh, so that does mean 8% did return to prophylaxis. And if we look at the mean activity, uh, mean and median, the mean is around 18% in year three, 15% in year four, and the median is still about 8% in year three and 7% year four. So factor levels do drop, but you can see the vast majority of patients are still remaining off of prophylaxis. And those who did have to go back onto factor eight profi or emicizumab were able to do so uh, safely. And just very briefly, just the phase one, two data from Geroptokogene, Fidelparvivec, we don't have the phase three data yet. Again, it's a phase one, two, so it's a dose finding and safety study. If you just focus in on cohort four, which was the highest dose cohort and the cohort that got translated to the phase three study, you see five patients there. And you can see that their pre-infusion ABR was 8.8 .8 in the white row there. And then the, more, the row below, you can see the post-infusion ABR was 0.7. So essentially, we're seeing responses similar to what we see for valoptocogene and roxaparvivec. There's a lot more data on this that I don't have time to get into. Suffice to say that, that the data are quite similar between this molecule for what's so far been published and valoptocogene and roxaparvivec. So getting to the end here, uh, this is uh, where we are with factor-based therapy, standard half-life and extended half-life we've been had for a long time heard about FNS Octocog Alpha. Those are all available now. There is this oral pill that's being worked on. Now, I haven't heard much on that lately. It's basically uh, a robotic pill that injects factor eight into the intestine with little tiny needles. Not sure that'll eventually make it. In the non-factor therapies, you heard about emicizumab and that's already available. That's why it's in the dark color in red. I say soon uh, because I think in the next year or two, we will see Mimate. NXT007 will take a little longer but Fetusaran and Concizumab are likely to come in 2024. 
um, maybe more stasimab a bit later and serpent BC a bit later. And with gene therapy, we have valoctocogene, roxaparvovec, and I believe next year we'll have geroctocogene, fitoparvovec. Um, so which one of the following agents is a novel uh, replacement therapy for hemophilia A? Um, so your options are, and again, which is a novel replacement therapy for hemophilia A? Is it emicizumab, concizumab, marstacimab, pitucerin, or valoctocogene roxaparvovec? Okay, and everyone got the right answer. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practice Changing Updates, the Evolving Hemophilia Treatment Landscape. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.